and chapter 9. When uh, I was glancing over Romans, thinking how we would divide all of this, I thought, well, chapter 9, that'll be quite easy. We'll do that in two sermons, but we'll do well to get through three verses uh, this morning. Romans chapter 9, it's on page uh, 1135. We'll read verses 1 to 5. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all and uh, forever praised. Amen. Now, um, I was going to say I want to look at this. I'm just wondering what I've done with my notes. <coughs> oh, here they are. <laughs> I was going to have to do it from memory, which um, I probably could do. But I don't wish to be over-political, and I realize asking this here is a little bit dangerous. But are you a nationalist? Um, don't answer. Uh, are, you a, are you a patriot? Uh, you know, a British patriot, a Scottish uh, nationalist? Do you love your country? Or maybe, let me put it another way, are you a family person? Do you love your family? Or maybe you have another group identity, that uh, a group that you belong to. So you might say you belong to a particular community. There could be somebody here who says, well, I belong to the gay community. Or someone uh, might say that, uh, you know, my community, if you like, is I'm part of that subsect of Dundee University or Abertay University that's known as the Northern Irish uh, community. So that's, that's the group that I identify with and that I belong to. Well, what happens when you are perceived to have betrayed, betrayed that group? Well, that's a question that Paul had to face. He's accused of betraying the Jews, his own people. Some people wonder what the connection is between Romans chapter 8 and chapter 9 and whether this is a completely different section, and I don't think it is. I think the whole letter, Paul is writing to a church in Rome where there's division, and he's writing about the Jews and the Gentiles, and he's writing as a Jew. He's also writing as someone who is accused of betraying his Jewish heritage. Another great question that I think this passage answers is simply, or at least raises, <coughs> and the rest of chapter 9 goes on to answer, why does God permit something which seems to go against his own promises and against his own purpose? Because you could be a very young Christian and think, well, everything's straightforward. You've got it worked out. You've got it sussed about how God works and what's going on in your life. But it won't be long as you go on in the Christian life before you will hit various barriers. And one of the strongest barriers always is, why did God permit this? I, I can't see any way in which God permitting this does any good. And worse than that, it seems to go contrary to what he says 
in his word. And most of us, I think, have enough savvy, enough knowledge not to try and blame God, and we would often try and blame other people. But deep down within us, there's this questioning. Um, there is this, this doubt, and there is this fear. And I think the fear is the worst part. The fear is, we've sang the, the Lord is kind and full of grace, but what if he isn't? What, what, what if what's happened to me is just part of uh, God not really caring all that much. So we're going to look at these two questions, and I want to do so. Just let me summarize where we are in the book of Romans, because I think it's important if you're not a Christian as well, Paul is saying what this gospel is. Now, this church in Rome is facing all kinds of dangers and distractions. The book of Romans itself is a brilliant piece of writing inspired by the Holy Spirit, telling us about the gospel of which Paul says in chapter 1 that he is the servant of that gospel. The gospel is the gospel of God. It's the good news that was promised in the Old Testament, the good news about Jesus who was declared and proved to be the Son of God by the resurrection, by his resurrection from the dead. In Romans 1, and if you want to know where our society is at, just go and read the second part of Romans 1 because it's as though that was written for us. He describes what happens in society when human beings have rejected God in their own stupidity and so the wrath of God is revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of humanity. He allows human beings to serve their own lusts and so it becomes a vicious cycle. As we reject God, we store up wrath against ourselves. And that's the interesting thing, by the way. The, the, the greatest harm that God can permit to happen to us is to let us have our own way. He points out that whether religious or not, every single human being is under the judgment of God. So what's the advantage of being Jewish, he asks in chapter 2. How can we be made right with God? We're all under judgment. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So how can that be dealt with? And he answers chapters 3 and 4. We're made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, who came as a sacrifice of atonement, a sacrifice in our place. Um, he died on the cross in our place. So Abraham in chapter 4 is given as an example. Because of this, what he calls justification, being made right with God, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We have peace and joy and hope and love. We're saved from God's wrath. We have life. We're dead to sin and alive in Christ. We're promised the resurrection. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But chapter 7, he, he talks about how even though we believe that and though we experience that, we still struggle against the remnants of sin within. But chapter 8 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The Spirit of God lives in us, and as we've been looking through chapter 8, we see this magnificent assurance for the believer. He chose us, and if he's for us, then nothing can prevail against us. We are more than conquerors. So Paul, he doesn't stop there. He now goes on into chapter 9, 10, and 11, really to talk about the Jewish people. And, and that is an important subject, but it's also a, a subject that applies directly to us, even though we may not be Jews. And I want to look 
first of all, at this compassion that Paul has for his own people. Because look how, how personal this is. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Notice what Paul is doing. He's saying, I'm not giving you a lecture. I'm not, I'm not giving you just a theological point. This is not about religion. He's saying that this, this is about just absolutely everything. He is really passionate about it. And one of the things I, I want to ask those of us who are Christian is to ask where our passion has gone. People can be passionate about many, many things, but passionate about the gospel, passionate about Jesus Christ. And Paul here, especially his compassion for his people. Let me say something, first of all, about Paul as a Jew. In Acts 26, verse 4, he says this, the Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that I confirmed to the strictest sect of our religion living as a Pharisee. Now, a lot of the Jews in Rome would have been what are called Hellenistic Jews. They are Jews who'd left Israel. They were spread all over the Roman Empire and um, gradually, they had assimilated, they had learned the language. Many of them would have learned Greek, and they would not have spoken Hebrew. They would have forgotten Hebrew. And Paul is saying, listen, I really am a Jew. I, I'm really from the heartland, and I speak Hebrew. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. It's, he, he's, he's very much identifying his Jewish background. I mean, I don't know what the equivalent would be in Scotland. You know, maybe I'm from the island of Lewis. I'm a cloud of the MacLeods. Uh, been speaking Gaelic since we got thrust out the garden. You know, uh, uh, you, you, I don't know how you would put it, but you're, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a pure Scot. You've got no mongrel blood in you at all as far as you are concerned. Well, Paul is saying, I, I, I really am Jewish, and, and, and I am Jewish not just in racial identity. He does talk about his race, but I'm Jewish in terms of my religion and being the, the observer in the strictest sect. And so, here's a very strange thing. I hadn't thought of this before. Paul's the perfect guy to be the apostle to the Jews. Who better understands Judaism than this rabbi? Who better understands how to communicate the good news to Jewish people than Paul? And God sends him to the Gentiles. That, in one sense, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's a bit like this church, for those of you who don't know, the first minister was a man called Robert Murray McShane. And McShane, when he came here, this building was built in 1836, this, believe it or not, was the really poor area of Dundee. This was one of the poorest areas in, in the West. Uh, Brody Ferry was one of the richest areas. But this and Salford in Manchester were actually listed as the two poorest areas in Western Europe. Half the children died here before they reached five years old. 
McShane spoke of the people here as being his industrial weavers. There was a, um, uh, before communism invented, the people here were communists. Uh, Karl Marx probably learned it from them. Uh, there was a book called uh, The Rights of Man by Thomas Paine. 10,000 copies of that book were sold in Dundee. The council were really worried about Magdalene Green because people gathered on Magdalene Green and they were scared that there were, would be riots and political revolution. So who did God send to preach his word in this place? Robert Murray McShane, who was the son of an upper middle class Edinburgh lawyer. This was not his territory. This was not his class. This was not his area. And worse than that, this was an area that was filled with disease and McShane had a very weak constitution. Eventually, he was to die of a disease he caught whilst visiting somebody uh, in the congregation. And yet, God sent him and McShane preached with great passion. Although he was of a weak body and he struggled with depression, God sent him here to this polluted and downtrodden place. One time he received an invite to go to a country parish where his income would have been more than tripled and where he would have had far less people to care for. And he said, how can I? How can I leave the people that God has given me? God doesn't always work in the way that we would expect. It's one of the problems, by the way, I have with strategies where people say, well, we've got to work out. Because if, if, as a strategy, it didn't make sense to take Paul and send him to the Gentiles, this Jewish rabbi. Why not take somebody who was naturally Greek-speaking? But he sent Paul. And this is why Paul was indeed regarded as a traitor by many of his, of his own people. But he says here, no, no, no. no. His passion and desire is for the Jewish people. And let me say something about what he says here in terms of the blessings of being Jewish. I'll just really list them. The, theirs is the adoption to sonship. The Jewish people were collectively called the son of God or the sons and daughters of God. They were a race that was chosen by God. Theirs was the divine glory. That is the glory that was in the temple that uh, in the Old Testament you wanted to experience and see the glory of God. Go to the temple in Jerusalem. Theirs was the covenants, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David. All these marvelous promises that were given to the people of God. Theirs was the receiving of the law. What does God want us to do? The whole uh, giving of God's law to his people. Theirs was the temple worship, what's called there, uh, the temple worship as it's translated in the NIV, which I think is a, is a good translation because it literally is the service. How do we worship God? How do we know God? What does God want? Our, you may not think this is your greatest need, but it is to know how to approach God and how to enter his presence. And God revealed that to the Jewish people. Those of us who were not Jews were to be greatly blessed through the Jewish people because they would show us the way to worship the God of all the earth. Theirs was the promises that are made. Theirs were the patriarchs, that is, the 12 tribes. And Paul says about the Jewish people, I have a great love for these people. And I think, by the way, that Paul's 
reaction is to be a reaction of all Christians. We owe the Jewish people a phenomenal amount. But it's all useless without Christ. For the last thing he says there, from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. The one who is God over all. See, it's a very hard thing to understand. In Europe, for many, many centuries, there has been an anti-Semitism which runs very deep and which is still there. Anti-Semitism being, being basically anti-Jewish. And it's still very, very much there. And sadly, some of it has come from within the Christian church. You read some of Martin Luther's things, and it's quite horrendous, actually. You know, we have great heroes in the faith, but sometimes they got it wrong, and Luther was totally wrong on this one. We should, I, I don't understand how you get somebody who says that they are a Christian, but they despise the Jewish people because Jesus was a Jew, and Paul was a Jew, and Peter was a Jew. Most of the early church were Jews. And for people to despise the Jews and yet claim to be Christian is a contradiction. It's wrong. Now, we'll see as we go through this, uh, chapters 10 and 11, the different understanding of, of what it means to be Jewish and how God blesses and uses the Jewish people. But the list that Paul gives here is without qualification, and we have to be enormously thankful for that. We love the Jewish people because of Jesus. And incidentally, notice what it says there. Uh, the NIV has it, comma, who is God over all. So it's a direct expression saying that Jesus is God. Now, some other versions have a full stop. And then they say, God be praised. But I think the NIV's uh, punctuation is correct. It's unusual, but this is a Paul deliberately challenging Jewish theology and saying God has a son, and Jesus is God over all. So what he's writing here, it's almost as though, I don't know if you've ever, um, if you're the kind of person who listens to talk radio, or if you're in the United States, it's what we would call shock jocks. That is, people who deliberately say things to shock people in order to get their audience figures up. I don't think this is what Paul is doing, but it's almost as if it's what he's doing. On the one hand, he's saying to the Gentiles, you need to be really thankful to the Jews. And on the other hand, he's saying to the Jews, you got it wrong, because all this is pointing up to Jesus, who is the Son of God, whom you crucified, for saying that he was the Son of God. So Paul, after doing all of this, we we'll go back to this simple statement. He talks about the great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And notice in verse 3 this extraordinary claim, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. And again, you have to be quite careful how you read this. Is it Paul saying, I w I, I'm prepared to go to hell for the sake of my own people. I actually don't think it is. I think it's saying if it, if it were possible. I think it's a little bit more subtly saying if it were possible. He says such is my anguish. Such is my care for my own people. That I could wish this. 
And I find, as you stop and reflect on that, just how incredibly moving it is. Paul is, is being accused. He's, he's being accused of, you've betrayed your people. You've gone against your people. You're rejecting your people. You've rejected your background. And what he's doing is, he's speaking with care. He's speaking with consideration. He's speaking with compassion. But he's saying, no, no. It's, he's using this incredibly emotive language. It's similar to Moses in Exodus 32, verse 32. Now, Moses says to God, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, then blot me out of your book. I plead with you, blot me out of your book if you will not forgive your people. It's funny. It's funny how we've turned Christianity in some ways in the modern West into a kind of very selfish, individualistic point of view. And it's funny how we don't seem to have this holistic, compassionate view. See, what Paul identifies here is a great division. We talk about Christianity coming and bringing healing and bringing unity, and it does. But Jesus also comes with a sword in a way. Why? Because when you become a Christian, Christ is number one in your life. And those who were number one in your life before will not always appreciate that. When you become a Christian, you don't stop caring for your family or your tribe or your nation. Indeed, sometimes the care is more intense, as Paul says here. But there is a division that occurs. And let me give an example of this. I'm reading, I've just finished a book that's just come out by a man called David Bennett, called War of Loves. David Bennett's from Sydney. He was a young gay activist. He hated the church, and I mean hated and did his utmost campaign. Um, he's, he was brought up by non-Christian parents, and much to his annoyance, his mother became a Christian. And he said to his mother, you can choose the son who you can see or the God you cannot. You're not having both. He, was, he really was that militant. He campaigned, he you know, had the, the banners and everything else. And then... It is an extraordinary story. Um, it's almost, as you read the book, you're almost saying, no, this can't be right, except the fruit of what has happened in his life. God basically met with him, and he became a believer. And it wasn't easy for him, because he was considered as a traitor to the gay community. There's a very tight community, a very, you know, in, in a sense, it's like a religious group. It's almost as if he was like a Muslim who had become a, a Christian believer. But I've seen this in, in, in many different ways. I remember one farmer who, when he became a believer, his children tried to have him sectioned and put away because they were scared that their inheritance would be wasted on the church. He was believed to have betrayed his own people. I know of a, a Jewish man who, when he became a believer in Jesus, was disowned by his own family. Well, likewise with David Bennett. But what struck me about that, when you're disowned by people, when people turn against you, when people start hating you, when people start attacking you, what is your instinctive reaction? Your instinctive reaction is to defend yourself. Your instinctive reaction is to fight back. Paul had many reasons to hate his own people. He was beaten up by the Jews. He was almost killed Everywhere he went, he would go to the synagogue first, and in, invariably, he was thrown out. 
If anyone was justified speaking with anger against the Jewish rejection of Jesus, Paul would have been. But there's not an ounce of that in this. There is just compassion. And, and going back to Mr. Bennett's book, David Bennett's book, I, what I found moved me and challenged me in so many ways was his love for the gay community that shone through, even though he's now in a position where he would describe himself as a gay celibate Christian. It's funny, he gets attacked by Christians as well for even using that. He gets attacked by his own community for using the word celibacy, and he gets attacked um, by some within the Christian community for using the word gay, and yet he's saying, look, this is what I am, but my identity is primarily in Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul says, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. But my identity is primarily in Christ. I want to ask also, in terms of this and the lessons that we can learn, where our passion is. In, in chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul has said that he serves God with his whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son. In chapter 12, he'll go on to say how he uses his mind to preach that gospel. His body, his heart, everything is given towards Jesus Christ. Incidentally, that's for, for me, that, the most moving part of Bennett's book was when he said, listen, for me, the argument was not about whether I could have romantic love or not whether I could have sexual relationships or not. The, the argument for me was very simply, was I going to serve Jesus Christ with my whole heart, body, soul, and mind? And was I going to give him everything? And if I was, was I going to obey what he said? And I think that that is something that we need to reflect upon, all of us, ourselves, in terms of where our passion is in these few verses in chapter 9, there is passion and there is compassion. He's bound both to Greeks and to non-Greeks. He says in chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is. The good news is the power of God. And I think what you get in the whole of Romans, and in these verses in particular, is a concern for the glory of God and for the souls of men and women. So I'm going to ask just this very, very simple question. Where is the passion for the gospel and for the lost? I've cited this before, but it's a letter that uh, I read in the University of Edinburgh. And it just made a great impact on me when I read it, the original letter, a letter from McShane, who, by the way, whose handwriting ensured he could have been a doctor. Um, wasn't very great, but once you decipher it, this is what he wrote to his congregation. On the 27th of February, 1839, if God looks down upon us as a parish, ah, what does he see? Are there not still a thousand souls, strangers to the house of God? How many does his holy eye now rest upon who are seldom in the house of prayer, who neglect in the forenoon, how many who freak the, frequent the tavern on the Sabbath day. This parish had 4,000 people in it. 1,500 were associated with this church, another 1,500 with other congregations in the city. 
in a day of a privatized religion in today's world, most of us would be very happy with a congregation of over 1,000 and 25% of the population attending our church. But not McShane, because he could see the lost and he believed that they were lost. He knew that they were starving and his compassion drove him out to reach them. You know what it's like? Imagine you're in this building and you are getting an absolutely cordon bleu feast. You know, just the greatest food. And then you know that you go to Taylor's Lane, you go out into the Perth Roads, and there are people who are lying in the streets starving to death. How could you eat that food? How could you do that? And not care about those who didn't have? Well, McShane went on to describe an Anglican missionary, Dr. Hulbeck, who had told him a story which impressed him and which he repeated to his congregation several times and I think I've repeated it to you several times, but it's just um, such a beautiful story. There was a large leprosy colony in South Africa where hundreds of lepers were kept. Those who were entered there were never allowed out again. Once you went in, that was it. The door was shut. Two Moravian missionaries entered there knowing they were not returned. When they died, there were two others waiting to go in. Ah, my dear friend, says McShane, may we not blush and be ashamed before God that we, redeemed with the same blood and taught by the same Spirit, should yet be so unlike these men in vehement, heart-consuming love to Jesus and the souls of men. Neil D.M. McLeod, a free church lawyer, was on Radio 5 this week talking about a friend of his. Very, very moving. A man called John Allen Chow, who he'd met. John Allen Chow, maybe wisely, maybe foolishly, and it depresses me when I read in the Christian press people attacking him, felt absolutely burdened to go to the North Sentinel Island in India to bring the gospel to a people who'd never heard it and who were regarded as kind of, you know, primitives who should be left alone. Well, he was killed. His diary is... Uh, it's just so moving to read the bits of his diary, certainly, that, that I have seen. Um, one time, he was shot at with bows and arrows, and one of the arrows from a, a child went through his Bible and almost into his heart. And he wrote in his diary, I, I don't want to die. But he did. He was killed. And Neil DM was talking about this young man who was a professional football coach, um, who had a real passion and love for Jesus. And I've seen Christians say, how ridiculous. Go there, give them diseases. How dare he disturb? These are professing Christians writing this. I've seen this on Christian websites. And I think, well, do you know this? Maybe he believed the Bible. Maybe he believed these people were lost. And maybe what he wanted to do was share with them the love of Jesus. As a man from my uh, home area, Easter Ross, who... Uh, went as a missionary, a minister, to Korea, actually to North Korea. And I was thinking about this when, when Callum was speaking. He didn't make it ashore. He translated the Bible into Korean, and when he was going ashore, he was killed. Never saw any fruit. Yet, do you know this? There are hundreds of Koreans who every year go to the parish of Nig up in the highlands because they regard him as the founding father of the modern Korean church. 
where, as Callum said, a church of 15,000 is not considered unusual. But he saw none of that. Why would, a, why would a man from the highlands of Scotland, who knew nothing about Korea, go to all that trouble to learn Korean? And then, as he's going ashore, he's killed. Now, again, you would look at this and you'd say, well, but Lord, what are you doing? This man's gone to all this trouble, and he goes ashore. Before he even gets ashore, he's killed. And yet, when missionaries returned to Korea, they found many people who'd already become Christians. Why? Because the books had made their way ashore, the Bibles had made their way ashore, and people read them, and read them to one another. See, we have lots of strategies. We have lots of ideas. And I'm not saying, please, I'm not saying that they're wrong but I'm saying that they're empty without the passion. And I wonder where that is. We do need mission, not as an an optional extra. We in this congregation are not about preserving a monument, maintaining a building, or just keeping ourselves comfortable. We are about committing our whole lives to Jesus Christ and seeking to serve him. To cite uh, David Bennett again, he said, how, how is it that in middle-class Christianity we have so often just made Christianity an optional extra, something which is added on to our lives? We have to give him everything. And he was saying, not just gay people, not just me, he says, but all of us have to give him everything. So let me finish by just asking this question, the question I asked at the beginning. Why does God permit something to happen which seems to go against his own purposes and promises? What is our purpose? What is our promise? Well, God's purpose with the Jews is not finished, and Paul will take chapters 9, 10, and 11 to argue that. But what is our purpose? If you think about it, if you, it when we ask the question about... God permitting something to happen which goes against his own purpose and promises. We need to be very careful because we need to think, well, what did God promise and what is the purpose? And I think the major mistake we make in that is we make our purpose equivalent with God's purpose. And that then really confuses us. Because it seems obvious to us, then we can understand why God wouldn't do that. And in some cases it's trivial and in some cases it is not trivial. There are times... Thankfully, not that many, but there have been times in my own life when I have, I have had no idea what God is doing or why. And I, at, at, that, at those times, you have to hold on to the promises that he is good, that he is kind, and that he is gracious. Let me say this in terms of purpose and our purpose as a church. It's to provide for those who do not know Christ. It's to provide for the poor. It's to provide for the areas where many people do not hear and will not hear the gospel. Our purpose is to bring the great news of Jesus Christ to the people of Dundee and beyond. And I think we need a major change in our thinking. A lot of churches seem to operate on the basis that there are lots of people who are seeking God and all we have to do is make the way attractive enough and they will come. But Romans 3 verse 10 tells us there are none who seek. There's not one. 
They seek happiness. They seek health. They seek spirituality. They seek themselves. But none seek God. And so what happens in the church is you get a kind of either hyper-Calvinist or um, what's called a, a dispensationalist road where there, people say, let's just hunker down and wait for Jesus to return. Let's be the holy remnant. But that is not thinking like Paul. It's not thinking like Christ. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. The incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection are all about God seeking us. The hound of heaven finds us. The gospel is now revealed and made known that all nations might believe and obey him. God seeks people today. How? Chapter 10 will tell us that it's through the proclamation of the word. How will people hear without someone preaching to them? They won't. So we have to go. We have to have beautiful feet. We have to actively seek the lost because that's the normal means that God uses. And that's why having the, the shop center in Charleston is so important. That's why taking every opportunity we have to reach out to people over this Christmas is so important. My heart's desire and prayer for the people of Israel, says Paul, is that they may be saved. And our heart's desire and prayer, well, what is it? Seriously, what's your heart's desire and prayer? Because we get awful upset about an awful lot of things. But when were we upset about the lost? When were we upset about the brokenness of our society and our culture? There was a program on Channel 4, a very unusual program. I'm amazed they broadcast it by a woman. It's called Trans Kids. You still get it on the catch-up. Woman from Southern Ireland describing how as a teenager she uh, identified as a boy and then puberty kicked in and lots of other things and now um, she's married, she's got two kids and she was really wondering how, what about all these kids that are being given puberty blockers and so on. So she made this program and it really is quite revealing in lots of, of different ways. But for me, most revealing of all was at the very end when she's in her car driving and she's crying and she's saying, what's happening to these kids? And what would have happened to me? They are so lost. They are so lost. Well, they are. What we're doing to our kids is sickening. What's happening in our culture is wrong, but it's a lost culture, and we weep for our culture, and we care for our culture. And it's not enough for Christians simply to say, well, they have to believe the gospel, and almost to say, well, it serves them right. It's like Paul saying, well, it serves the Jews right. No, he didn't do that. His, his heart, look at it. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. The one who rejoices in Christ, the one who says, rejoice in the Lord always, Yet he has unceasing anguish and sorrow in his heart for his own people. I feel it. The people of Scotland, honestly, I think we are in such a mess. In such a mess. And it's getting worse. And I can only see it getting worse. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. You want people to come 
to know Jesus. Some of you have people in your family who are not yet believers, and you're scared to feel. But if you're a parent, or if you're a child who loves your parents, you want them to have the best, and the best is Jesus. And I think it's right for us to weep and to pray and to cry out to the Lord, how long, O Lord, how long? And it's right for us to have that passion and that compassion. And it's right for us as church, as a church, to think about that. Are we prepared to seek the lost? Are we prepared to recognize that that is what our church is about? And if you're here as a non-Christian, you have no idea how much we love you, but especially how much God does. He brought you here. David Bennett, I'm just going back to him again, he said it was the thing that struck him was the overwhelming love of God, which was way beyond anything that he found within his community. And it, he, it, it just bowled him over. And my hope and prayer is that you come to know and to understand and to see the love of God. You may be seeking your identity in so many different ways, but the best is to have your identity in Christ. May God bless his word. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the passion of Paul. Thank you that he was prepared to go against his own people, not just to follow the traditions, not just to seek popularity. Thank you that he was prepared to go into places where he would be rejected and beaten. And thank you that his model is an example for us, not to hate, but to love, not to despise, but to long for. Thank you <clears throat> that Paul was only reflecting the love of Jesus, who came to seek and to save those who are lost. And we are the lost. And you find us, and you bring us into your presence. Lord, some of us here are confused and hurt and wounded because we don't understand your purposes. We don't understand what's going on in our life. Help us to understand what Paul had said in Romans 8, that how will you not also along with Christ freely give us all things? Your purpose is to save. Your purpose is to bless. Your purpose is to glorify. And even though we may go through circumstances and sorrows and pains that cause us to ask, how is that blessing? <clears throat> Grant, O oh God, that we would trust absolutely in your goodness and not in our own feelings. And may it be that each of us here will know and experience the love of Christ, even as we go from this place. In your name, amen.